You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, Titus 2, 11 to 15, is intimately connected to the previous passage, which Pastor Jonathan preached last week. And you know this because of the first word that Max just read, the word for. Okay? Um, Titus 2, 1 to 10 leads straight in with 2, 11 giving us the ground and foundation of last week's passage. And last week, Pastor Jonathan showed us that our conduct as Christians bears witness to the reign of King Jesus. Whether we are old or young, male or female, the way that we live testifies to what God has said and what God has done. There's a way of living that accords with sound doctrine. That's Titus 2 verse 1. There is a conduct that is in line with our convictions. And so today, since these passages are connected, I want to answer the question, why that's the case? Like, why does this conduct and that doctrine accord with one another? What's the connection? What's the, what's the fit between this conduct and that doctrine? That's the main question that I want to answer. But first, I want to show you how this whole passage from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter uh, 2 verse 15 hangs together, okay? So follow me here. You've got it right in front of you. Paul is exhorting Titus on what his ministry should look like. He's telling Titus what to tell the church in Crete. He's teaching Titus what and how to teach the church that he's planting. Listen to a few key elements of the passage. So verse 1 as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, so again, there's a conduct that accords with our conviction. Paul then gives this instructions for older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And then he returns to Titus himself, verse 7, look there. Show yourself, so now he's talking to Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So here, it's not enough to merely teach with words. Titus must model with his life. Like, Titus can't export what Titus doesn't have. His preaching and his pra practice must line up with each other and with what God has said and what God has done. Then at the end of chapter 2, he returns again to where he started. So look at verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, so notice that that's bookended there. It begins with teach what accords with sound doctrine. It ends with declare, exhort, rebuke with authority. And so these tasks, teaching, declaring, exhorting, rebuking, modeling with your life, all of these are what Titus himself is to do for this church or these churches and then he's to appoint elders, that's from chapter 1, appoint elders who will carry on that teaching and rebuking and correcting and exhorting and modeling after he's gone. Which means that the same task that Paul gives to Titus is the task that we as pastors have for you. 
Pastors are called to teach what accords with sound doctrine and to model good works for their people and to declare and exhort and rebuke with all authority. So we stand up here week by week and we say there is a conduct that accords with sound doctrine. Older men live this way. Older women live this way. Do this. Younger women do that. Uh, Younger men be self-controlled. And then Paul at the end there says... If someone hears you, Titus, say that, we're talking to me now, Pastor Joe, if someone were to hear you saying and declaring and teaching, Pastor, look, when you start telling us how to live, you've left off preaching and you've got to meddling. In other words, if people attempt to blow you off for teaching and declaring and exhorting and rebuking, Paul says to Titus and to the pastors, don't be deterred. Don't let them disregard you. Remember that you have authority from God, from his word, to teach what accords with sound doctrine, both the doctrine and the lifestyle. But it's important to stress here, though, that for Paul, it's not enough to merely declare, here's what God expects you to do. Here's how you should live. It's essential for Paul that we connect the conduct to the doctrine of God's grace that it adorns, okay? Now, I added two words there I want to focus on. But last week, Pastor Jonathan said it this way. Verse 1 tells us uh, that how we live must be in line with what God has said. Verse 11 tells us that how we live must emerge from what God has done. That's right. And so I use those two key words. The first word is adorn, okay? This is for kids. You guys can listen to this part because you'll get it. This will be, be something from your world that's gonna, we're gonna elevate to the adult world and it's probably gonna take some of you back to childhood maybe. Um, that word adorn comes from verse 10 where Paul says about the bond, his commands to bond servants, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So earlier it was teach what accords and in verse 10 it's there's a conduct that adorns that same doctrine. And that, this is a great time of year to think about that, right? Like you look up here on the stage and you think, oh, adornment. Um, our church is adorned for the Advent and the Christmas season. So think about what we do to that, those trees back there or those trees over there or those wreaths or these um, handrails up here. We take a good, we'll do the tree. We take a good, healthy, evergreen tree and we cover it with lights and we wrap it with ribbon. Uh, we may in our homes hang ornaments from its branches. And the idea is this adornment makes that tree look even more beautiful. Like the tree's good, it's sturdy, that, that handrail is very functional, but when we wrap it, it makes it pop. It makes it pop. And I always think about the final scene in A Charlie Brown Christmas. So this is where, kids, you guys can relate to this, right? Where um, Charlie Brown has that little pathetic Christmas tree that he got because they were all the the fake trees and he's like I don't do the eastern syndicate whatever I don't ah, none of that I want a real tree and he gets that little pathetic tree and he tries to hang an ornament from it and the tree just bends over and so he just throws up his hands he walks off in despair but right after that all of his buddies the rest of the peanuts gang right shows up and they look at the little pathetic tree and they say it's not such a bad tree and they grab the ornaments from Snoopy's doghouse and then they go over to the little pathetic tree and then they do this, this thing. 
right? The little waving around the little tree, like all of them surrounded, wave, 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 wave. And then they step back and it's like, boom, it pops. In other words, that little pathetic tree has been adorned. Okay, it's been adorned. It's now what it meant to be. And they all start singing, hark the herald angels sing. And so that's adornment. It's, it's taking something now, that little pathetic tree. We're talking about a good sturdy tree and we still adorn it to make it pop. That's what we're doing with our conduct and the doctrine of God. The doctrine is sturdy and thick like a tree, and then our conduct makes it pop, makes it shine. It bears witness to the reign of Jesus. That was the first word. Second word I mentioned was the word grace, okay? And I said the word grace because it's the first word, the main word in verse 11 to 15. Um, Teach them how to live so as to adorn the doctrine for the grace of God has appeared. Like it's the leading word. And so I'm gonna walk through this passage and I'm gonna put the emphasis on grace and we're gonna see what does grace do? What does grace accomplish? What does, it, what does it do? And in doing so, you're gonna see that grace may not be what you thought it was. Grace may be more than you've given it credit for. There may have been some misconceptions you've had about what grace does. And as I, so let's, let's start walking through and I'm gonna show you, I think I've got four, four things that grace does. Number one, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. So older men, older women, younger men, uh, younger women, bond servants, doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, Grace has appeared and brought salvation for you. And the word salvation here is significant in Titus. It shows up repeatedly, right? We already saw uh, the conduct adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior, verse 10. Now here, grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, verse 11. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2.13. Next week, Pastor Josh is going to be walking us through uh, uh, the first part of chapter 3, and it's going to say very simply, he saved us. Like, he saved us. This is the fundamental doctrine that Christians believe. Jesus saves sinners. But that simple statement, Jesus saved sinners, or he saved us, needs to be unpacked. Like it raises a lot of questions, okay? Here's some of them, okay? He saved us from what? He saved us by what? He saved us for what? Okay, so if you can remember those, from what, by what, and for what, I'm gonna come back to those. So I want you to stick a pin in that. I want you to take, take, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the word salvation and I just want you to put it in your pocket for a minute. And after we've walked through the rest of the passage, I'm gonna ask you to pull the word salvation back out and we're gonna put it together and we're gonna, we're gonna see the whole, okay? But for now, for now, all I want you to see is this. What does grace do? What's the first thing that grace does? Grace brings salvation for all people. Jesus saves sinners. Okay, two and three go together. Okay, the grace of God has appeared. Now I want you to notice the next two things. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the second. And third, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, now this is the place, I think, where grace surprises us. At least it might, it surprised me. 
It's not the normal way we think about grace. Grace bringing salvation? You bet. We're saved by grace through faith, faith, not by works. God forgives our sins by grace. He cancels our debts by grace. We don't have to pay. He pays. Grace lets us off the hook. Of course, that's true. And next week, we're going to see the glories of being justified by his grace. That's verse 7. But here, notice what grace is doing. Grace isn't merely bringing salvation and forgiveness. Grace is training us. It's the grace that's training us. Grace is a drill sergeant who is going to whip you into shape. And the image is not far from the biblical one. Okay, that word for training there, that word for training, it's the word paideuo. Okay, little, little Greek lesson. We don't do this a lot, but I'll do it here. It's the same word, it's related to the word that shows up when Paul says in Ephesians, fathers bring up your children in the paideia and instruction of the Lord. Okay, the discipline is the way our English translations translate that. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, and we've seen this word a number of times in the pastoral letters that we've been walking through. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenaeus and Philetus are handed over to Satan to be taught, that's the word, to be disciplined, not to blaspheme. So God is going to teach these two false teachers a lesson, and Satan will be his tool, his rod, to whip them into shape. 2 Timothy 2.25, the Lord's servant, in his teaching, must correct, that's the word, paideo, must correct his opponents with gentleness. So it's gentle, but it's still correction. It's still confrontation. It's still discipline. It's not indulgent. And this word, actually, I'm going to jump out of Paul for a minute, makes a major appearance in Hebrews 12. So every use, I'm going to read this passage, every use of the word discipline that I'm about to read is related to this word paideo. Okay, so just listen to what this word means. See if you can get the flavor of it, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, there's the word, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. There is again, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So again, notice those elements, right? Discipline is hard. It's something to endure. It's painful, not pleasant. But it is an expression of love. And God's discipline trains us so that we share his holiness and we bear fruit in righteousness. Discipline is what a father does for his children in reproving and correcting their sinful behavior. It's what a coach does for an athlete in training and pushing him to get that extra 
rep. It's what the drill sergeant does at boot camp when he demands that the recruit drop and give him 20. It's what a teacher does in pushing a student to learn more and work harder than he thinks he can. And the point of all of that is to say, that's what grace does. Like when you think about grace, when you hear the word grace, you need to think that. Grace trains us in this intense, fatherly, coach-like, drill, sergeanty way. So if you hear the word grace and you think indulgent, soft, easy, you're not thinking about biblical grace. Grace is kind, but it's firm. It is gentle, but it's unbending. It is loving, but it's a relentless love. Like, relentless. It's not safe, but it's good. So, what does grace train us to do then? Okay, now we're back to Titus here, okay? It trains us in negative and a positive. See them both, okay? On the one hand, renounce ungodliness and worldliness. On the other hand, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. So renounce and live. Turn from the one, turn to the other. Now, I would love, if, if I had more time in a sermon like this, to talk in more detail about what worldly passions are. They are simply desires that are at home here in the present age. Like, they fit here if here is all there is. That's what worldly passions are. They're the kind of desires that fit here if here is all there is. I'm teaching through uh, screw tape letters by Lewis at Bethlehem College and Seminary this semester. And a few weeks ago, came across the line. Here's what Lewis says. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. Okay, that's a word. Lewis has been very helpful to me on this, on worldliness, because he connects worldliness to the lust for the inner ring, the desire and the ache to be on the inside, to find your emotional and psychological home in a particular group of people, and then the terror that comes along with being left out of that group. And whether it's junior high cliques, whether it's the cool kids in college, whether it's keeping up with the Joneses when you're in a family, it is a perennial temptation, but I cannot do it justice right here. It's beyond the scope of a sermon. So as a pastor who also happens to be a professor, I'm going to give you homework. The homework is to, and and an opportunity, the homework is to go read two essays by C.S. Lewis One called The Inner Ring and the other called Membership. Okay, and you could simply read them and reflect on those in light of this sermon and what it means to renounce worldly passions. Okay, and if you do that, I think you'll receive grace, the kind that's hard but good. But there's an opportunity, so in a month, January 12th, 7 p.m., I'll be leading an online webinar on those two essays. Just happened to be the case. So January 12th, 7 p.m., That webinar is primarily for prospective students to Bethlehem College and Seminary. It's a way of kind of giving them a sampling of what we do. Um, 
but I'm extending the invitation to all of you because I can do that. So if you want to come and think more deeply about worldliness and worldly passions and its antidote, then I'm just going to invite you. I'm going to include a link in the sermon notes for the passage. You can find that online uh, so that you can register if you'd like to join me on January 12th. All right, back to the passage. Grace trains us to renounce worldliness and to live a certain kind of life. And notice that life is basically what Paul has described in Titus 2, 1 to 10. Self-control, upright, and godly is a pretty good summary of what he's just said and what Pastor Jonathan went through last week. So if you want to know what does that mean for me, then go back, listen to Pastor Jonathan's sermon, listen for your circumstances, and think, grace is training me to live that way. That's what grace is trying to do in my life right now. Okay. That's so. One, grace brings salvation. Two, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. Three, grace trains us to live godly lives. And fourth, it may, it, what makes it Christian grace is it, it does this training in a particular way. Like, we live in the present age, look at the passage, waiting. That's what, this is different. Grace doesn't just train us in what we should do but it trains us in how we should do it. Don't just be self-controlled. Be self-controlled while waiting. Don't just live a godly life. Live a godly life while waiting. And waiting for what? For our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian life is an expectant life, a hopeful life. It leans forward in eager anticipation of what Pastor Mike preached in his exhortation. It leans into that in hopefulness. Now, we're getting close now with that to how the conduct fits the doctrine. What's the connection? There's one more piece. When Paul mentions the appearing of the glory of Jesus in the future, it makes him think, I gotta talk about what Jesus has done in the past. So he says, who's Jesus? He gave himself for us. And he did so for purposes, two of them, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So now, here's the point where you can pull the word salvation out of your pocket. Remember, we had those questions. From what, by what, for what? We want to answer those questions and we want to think. And in answering those, we're going to see how our conduct, how we live, self-controlled, upright, godly, connects to the doctrine of our salvation, of God's grace. In thinking about the doctrine of salvation in the Bible, we can make a distinction between two aspects. Okay? One is a cosmic, historical work of God in redemptive history. Like Think cross. Think incarnation. Think second coming. That's one dimension. And then the second is the personal, individual work of God in your life. Does that make sense? Like, when you say salvation, like you could divide it and say there's the stuff that Jesus did in history that has cosmic, global significance, and then there's the stuff he does personally, individually in me. And those are related but different. Okay? Let's do that. Both of those are included in our doctrine of salvation. And then within both of those, theologians 
often refer to what they call the already not yet dimension of those. Try to explain that, okay? Meaning, salvation has already happened, and in another sense, it's not yet fully happened. We are already truly saved, but we're not yet finally saved. God does not save us all at once. And so we can think of salvation, both that macro, global, historical, and that micro, personal, individual, in three stages because of that reality, okay? There's a past stage of salvation, a present stage of salvation, and a future stage of salvation. Or again, in saving us, God does something decisive in the past. He is doing something progressive in the present, and he will do something final in the future. Decisive, progressive, final. And this passage and the one next week are some of the clearest in showing all three of those dimensions. Okay? Today's passage focuses on the macrocosmic, global, redemptive, historical. Next week's passage focuses on the personal, individual, what happens in your heart. One of them is the external work of God in history. The other is the internal work of God in your life. So I'm going to focus on that macro one. And then next week, Pastor Josh is going to focus on the micro one. So notice in this passage, there are two appearings. Do you see it? You just got to pay attention. When we read our Bibles, you got to pay attention to the words. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. That's in the past. Verse 13, and we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. So grace has appeared, glory will appear. That's already, not yet. That's what I mean. And in between, we live, here's that third element, what's, what's happening now, we live where? Verse 12, see it? In the present age. So, grace appeared in the past, we live in the present age, and we're waiting for the future appearing. So, grace has appeared refers to the first coming of Jesus, in which he gave himself for us. So, when Paul says grace, he means Jesus. We've talked about that before in this series, just like in 2 Timothy 2. Next week, in Titus 3-4, Paul will say something similar. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. There's there's another reference to the past appearing. So, grace is the first coming. Incarnation, cross, resurrection, ascension. This is a decisive and past dimension to macro salvation. When grace brings salvation, it's been brought. And now we can answer two of those questions from the passage. We are saved from what and by what? Look there. It says Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness. That's what you're saved from. You're saved from lawlessness. How? By giving himself for you. What are we saved from? Lawlessness, ungodliness, worldly passions. What are we saved by? What is the objective 
external work that Jesus has done to accomplish this salvation. He gave himself for you. He died for you. That's how he saved you. And it is finished already. But then notice again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, that second coming. We wait in expectation for his return while he will finally and completely transform this broken world. He will come as judge and he will separate wheat from chaff, as Pastor Mike exhorted us. But note that Paul calls this coming a blessed hope, a happy hope, not an inconvenient hope. Not a, Jesus, could you wait for a minute? Because I got some other stuff I'd like to do. Hope. When Paul considers that day, he said, this is a blessed, happy, glorious, satisfying hope, and I'm waiting for it. No more death. No more tears. No more injustice. No more pandemic. No more depression and anxiety and loneliness and loss and pain. Everlasting joy with our great God and Savior face to face forever. But not yet. But not yet. So on the one hand, he gave himself, already done. On the other hand, we're still waiting for the blessed hope. Not yet. Grace has appeared, glory will appear, and so what about the meantime? Here's where we're going to end. What's God doing in the present age? Answer, he is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. That's what Jesus is doing macro-historically right now. He is gathering a people so that they can be his, so that he can look at them and say, mine. These ones are mine, not just mine by creation. Everything's his by creation. These are mine in a special sense. These are my precious, treasured possession. These are mine. I'm going to make my home with them. I'm going to dwell among them. And so he is saving them and training them to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives. He's cleansing them from their impurities, sanctifying them in the truth, calling them together as congregations who bear witness to the reign of Jesus. So now, notice this. He saved us from lawlessness. From lawlessness. He has saved us by giving himself for us. And last question, Saved for what? He has saved us for good works. There to be his own possession, a people zealous, eager, and passionate for good works. And now we answer our big question. There is a conduct that accords with and adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. But why? Why does that conduct, what Pastor Jonathan preached last week, why does that conduct adorn that doctrine? And the answer is, Jesus has redeemed you from all lawlessness. And therefore, grace is training you to renounce ungodliness. Like, if you've been redeemed from lawlessness, ungodliness no longer fits. It doesn't fit. It's unfitting. It's not proper. It doesn't accord. Given what you've been saved from, God-rejecting, worldly-minded lawlessness. 
What kind of conduct is fitting? Self-controlled conduct, because you're no longer enslaved by worldly passions that take you wherever they want to go. Upright conduct, because you've been delivered from unrighteousness and lawlessness. Godly conduct, because Christ is purifying you from your ungodliness. Your conduct, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, is based on what God has done in history in the past. Jesus gave himself for you. And it is anticipating what God will do for you in the future when the glory of Jesus appears so that now, in the present age, in the meantime, between the already and the not yet, you stand on Christ's past work with confidence. And then you lean into God's future work with expectation and therefore, in the present, you say no to ungodliness and yes to sober-mindedness, self-control, upright, and good works. And all of this, Paul says, fits. Like it fits hand in glove. It adorns the great doctrine of our God and Savior. Now, normally I would say this brings us to the table, but we have to take a detour. We're gonna go to the baptismal. So let me pray, and I'm gonna invite Pastor Jonathan and those who are being baptized up. And then we're going to come back because I want to land at the table on Advent in light of this text. Let's pray. Father, it's a great gospel. It's a great doctrine. It's a glorious doctrine of what you've done and what you are doing and what you will do. So help it to to be a foundation under our feet and a hope out in front of us that leads us to live upright and godly lives in the present age. Through Christ we pray, amen.